0: Great, well, it's really super to to be here. We have very fond memories of this church. haven't been here for a few years, but when Jeremy was leading, um, we used to come up here every year for a number of years and uh, always really enjoyed our visits up here. Always it was a great church to, to come to. And then when Jeremy went to Manchester, he kind of dragged me over to Manchester. So uh, went there for a few years, and then he dropped me. So I kind of turned out to but when that happened, Darlington picked me up. So I now I go regularly to Darlington. So, uh, but it's really great to uh, come and to be back with you here in, in Seaside again. And we've been looking forward to this week- weekend very much indeed. And great to see Michael here too, because uh, Michael and I also go, go back quite a number of years remember him as a very young man in, the, in Ghana in, the, in John Pepe's church and then when Michael planted his church in Ho as it's called when we going there in its early stages and preaching there so it's really great to to see Michael as well so thanks ever so much for inviting us and uh, so who was who was it that was a, I was a, I was teaching at leadership training somebody said Raj said, can you come and visit us so it, was, it was it somebody uh, here yeah. Yeah. he's decided to one in <laughs> oh, see, right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, so, well, he, he had me for a week in lectures, so he obviously decided that was enough, yes. Yeah, so. <laughs> right, now, I, I, do, I do like to uh, do what I'm asked to do, and I'm therefore going to do that, <laughs> which is actually to give a, a talk that uh, Raj knows that I have given previously Um, And it's a a talk that I actually put together when I was uh, completing 40 years of ministry and uh, retiring, in fact, from Church of Christ the the King in Brighton. And uh, it's kind of... This is not a Bible talk I'm going to give you this evening, so uh, you know people... When they start to preach, they, they usually say, will you please take out your Bibles? Well, don't take out your Bibles, because it's not going to do you any good tonight, really. All right? This is going to be more, more anecdotal uh, than Bible, all right, tonight, because it's a reflection uh, on 40 years of ministry as I was coming up to retirement at, at uh, Church of Christ the King in Brighton. And uh, I suppose simply because of that subject, this talk got picked up a bit, and I've been asked to give it a number of places, to be honest. Uh, I'm always slightly nervous of speaking to a group like this with this talk, and i better get this off my chest straight away, because you need to understand that actually when I wrote this talk originally, I actually wrote it to reflect on 40 years of ministry to a group of full-time pastors. All right, so uh, my difficulty now in transposing that into groups that are not full-time pastors pastors is slightly awkward and not everything in this talk will actually land on everybody here but I I will widen it somewhat because I know I'm speaking to a leadership group so uh, but please bear in mind that it was actually put together first of all to speak to those that were serving in in full-time leadership I know you're all full-time at one level but using that term in a particular way. Uh, I, I actually uh, nearly called this talk originally, Can You Manage the Stairs? And the reason for that was uh, that as I was literally preparing this talk, uh, I, I realised that I had to go to Specsavers to get a, uh, an appointment and have my eyes tested. Now you'll notice that I'm not wearing glasses uh, and I can actually read very small prints. Uh, usually as you get old, as you probably know, you go long-sighted, but I'm more short-sighted, so I can actually read very, very small print, so I don't uh, use glasses when I'm, I'm preaching. But I do need glasses when I'm driving, for, it, for example, so I do have some glasses that I have to wear. And that was the reason I needed to go to uh, Specsavers in order to uh, get a test for some new glasses. Now, I was extremely busy at the time, and Specsavers rang me up, and they said, when can you come for and appointments, and I said, well, could you possibly fit me in at lunchtime, because that's the only time that I could really manage, and I gave one or, or two dates. And then the lady at the, on the phone at the other end, she said, um, can I have your date of birth, please? So she obviously quickly worked out I was 64 at the time, and she, she said, um, now, we're also under pressure, she said. If you come in lunchtime, that's okay, but she said we only would have an upstairs uh, uh, room available to see you. Would you be able to manage the stairs? <laughs> so you think uh, how people sort of view you when uh, you're reaching certain ages. And as it happened, our offices at Church of Christ the King in Brighton were up a flight of stairs. And to the very last day, I made it a point of principle always to run up those stairs to get to the office. And in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, I went back to the office for the first time, probably five years, and I decided I'm still going to do it. So I'm still running up those stairs. (laughs) It's interesting when people, uh, or what people say to you as you're coming up to retirement. I I remember uh, when I was there at Brighton and I said that I was going to retire from uh, the eldership of the church. I remember a couple of people saying to me, haven't the other elders pleaded with you to stay on? And I said, no. <laughs> and so I wonder what goes through people's minds. And then people would say to me things like, I suppose you're going to really wind down now. Well, as soon as I finished at uh, Church of Christ the King soon and, and I, we went uh, across to South Africa for a year and spent a year with the the church in Cape Town and his Jubilee Church in, in Cape Town, which we'd had a lot of uh, friendship and uh, involvement with over the years, I now refer to that as my gap year. It came just at the <laughs> other end rather than earlier on. And uh, then, uh, when we came back from uh, South Africa, we then moved to Bournemouth, and that's where we are now. So Sue and I are in Bournemouth in Citigate Church, uh, which is led by Guy Miller, who also heads up the Commission Sphere, and I'm a voluntary elder in that church. And I've been. I've been an elder for something over over five years now. So I'm telling you this as a bit of an introduction to the fact that uh, I have actually been in Christian leadership ministry for some now nearly 47 years. So I'm speaking against that background. More precisely, though very briefly, uh, I actually went to Spurgeon's College where I trained to be a Baptist pastor. And then when I left Spurgeon's College... I took the leadership of a small church in Southampton for about four years, and then I moved on to a bigger church in a small town called Whitstable near Canterbury in Kent. We were there nearly ten years. That was a very formative period because at that point I had a clear understanding of what I felt that God was saying Uh, about the nature of the the church, and we began to bring in fundamental change to that church. We became the most charismatic Baptist church in Kent. Uh, Mm -hmm. We achieved some degree of notoriety at that point and uh, uh, had all sorts of people visiting us. It was a very busy, very challenging, very exciting and quite scary period of our life as we saw a church going through a period of transition. Uh, Towards the end of that period, I got to know Terry Virgo and developed a friendship with him, but uh, I left that church as I was called to go and teach at Morland's Bible College, uh, in the, uh, which is actually quite near Bournemouth, where we live now, in fact. And I went there for three years and taught uh, some Greek and theology and New Testament. But at the end of three years, uh, Terry actually asked us to go down to Brighton and to join the, the team there. Interesting story about that, actually, because uh, when we went to uh, teacher at Moreland's Bible College. My wife uh, is a very good pastor's wife and in some way she uh, wasn't altogether peaceful about us teaching in a, in a college. She so kind of appreciated being a pastor's wife and like I say was excellent, has always been excellent at it. And she was in the garden when we first got down to our new house near the college where I was going to lecture and she was praying and she said to God, Uh, how long will we be here? And I think this is the only time this happened to my wife, but she heard audibly God say to her three years. And exactly three years later, (laughs) we moved uh, from there down to to Brighton. And I suppose that really was our main phase of ministry as I look back over the years. uh, We were 24 years at Church of Christ the King in Brighton. That's where Terry Virgo was based, uh, and when I first went, Terry was leading the church. After about two years, I took on the leadership of the church for about eight years, and then I kind of went on a a wider, uh, more itinerant travelling role, and was overseeing the training at the various bases uh, around the country as well in New Frontiers. And then when I retired from uh, Brighton, we, as I say, we went to Cape Town for a year, and Now we're at Bournemouth, Uh, so that's a quick overview of what we've actually done over the last now 47 years. It's interesting, as you go through life, you look to certain dates in the future. Uh, Those of you that are married will remember when you got engaged the agony of waiting for the marriage day to come, and uh, you know, probably... Many of us used to even have charts where we used to kind of tick off the days counting down uh, to where we would actually get married. And then, not only do you find that uh, you've got married, but it's kind of uh, a particular anniversary. I can can remember uh, very vividly when I was uh, a young married man having people in my church who were celebrating their silver weddings and thinking, wow, you know, silver wedding, married 25 years, goodness, that's a long time. Well, in two years' time, Sue and I will be married 50 years if, we, if we're spared, and you know, the, the, the years rush by. Um, those of you that have mortgages, here's a bit of good news for you. Actually, one day you do pay off your mortgage, all right? There is a day coming when you actually manage to uh, clear uh, your mortgage. As far as retirement is concerned, I, I found personally that it came on my radar seven years before it actually happened. That's when I first began to think about it. And I suppose people begin to think, plan uh, for retirement. But it first came onto my radar seven years before it actually happened. Uh, and then, of course, the day comes and comes. Now here I am. I've been nearly seven years retired. So it's just extraordinary how uh, you find dates come and go. So I'm talking out of the background of that kind of experience and I hope what I share with you over the next few minutes will have things in it which can be of of help to you as I kind of reflect on those years. Now, out of a number of things I'm going to mention, none of them are in chronological order of importance except I would say the first, all right, so the first thing I'm going to share with you is uh, the very first thing I want to share with you but the others don't come really in any chronological sequence. But the first thing that I'd want to say as I reflected over the years was this, have faith in God. Uh, and that may seem strange to say have faith in God because obviously if we're Christian believers and in a setting like this all of us are, uh, we've obviously got saving faith. But I'm talking here about have faith in God for advance. And certainly as I look back over 40 years as I was coming up to retirement, I had to say to myself in all honesty... And this is what, what I want to pass on to you because uh, some of you have got a lot of years ahead of you yet. Uh, but uh, what I want to say to you is that I wish I had believed God for more. All right? It's honestly what I felt. I was just coming up towards retirement. I wish I'd believed God for more. I reflected on the fact that my background was such that there was a kind of pressure on me not to believe for very much because I became a Baptist pastor in 1969, and uh, when I became a Baptist pastor, the, the Baptist uh, denomination in this country was in quite severe decline which may have been accelerated by my joining the Baptist ministry, I don't know. But but, uh, uh, it was in quite severe decline, and the number of baptisms were going down year by year. And I always remember this shocking statistic. Now, there were 3,000 Baptist Union churches and about 1,000 independent Baptist churches as well. But I was a member of a Baptist Union church. That's what's usually thought of as the Baptist denomination. And I remember at the time I came into... Uh, into ministry as a Baptist pastor that it was stated that only six Baptist churches out of 3,000 were actually growing. So that shows you the low state of uh, church life, really, in this country uh, at that time. Now, I think it must have meant that six were substantially growing. I can't imagine out of 3,000 there weren't some others that sort were of putting on a few members, um, but I think it was six so that were probably substantially Growing. And so I came into kind of full time, if I can use that term again, I came into full time Christian ministry at a time when very much the the kind of feeling was that if you could hold on and conserve what you had, you'd actually be doing pretty well. I mean, that was the kind of flavor of things at that time. And I remember reading about mega churches in America. And I don't know wh- who ever defined a mega church as 2,000, but that seems to be the, the figure that people live with. Uh, and uh, a mega church is a church of uh, 2,000 or more. And I, I can remember so vividly as a young pastor thinking, we will never have mega churches in England. I remember thinking that very clearly. And then a few years back, I actually did a paper for a theological forum I was leading in New Frontiers. And the paper was the challenge of the mega churches in England. And the fact is, now, particularly in places like London, we certainly have got mega churches. I mean, I've attended, Sue and I have attended the biggest church in the UK, which is in North London. And uh, Matthew Ashomalolo who's a good name, <laughs> And uh, uh, he's, he's uh, got a church of about 13,000. Uh, and uh, actually, the biggest congregation that has ever been in this country, in fact. A biggest church that's ever been in this country, right uh, throughout uh, the history of the church in this country, and uh, we haven't yet got a mega church in New Frontiers, but you may know that Toppy is getting very close, right? If the if the magic figure is 2,000, uh, Toppy is getting very close, apparently, to uh, that 2,000, and so things, you know, have changed, and I think New Frontiers has always been very different on this issue. And I realised that as soon as I came into New Frontiers, we were always positive about growth, always have been. In some ways, let me be honest, I think on occasions we've been slightly too much the other way. (laughs) I think we've sometimes given projections that are a bit probably uh, far out in some respects, but at least it's been positive. But my background was such, it probably made me over-cautious. I found that Terry Virgo was a huge inspiration to me here. um, Because Terry is a man who simply believes God. uh, And I learned so much from him in that sense. And if I had my time again, I would have believed for more growth, more staff, more money. Uh, I really would have believed for those things. And I kind of, after 40 years, I thought, hmm... If I reflect on my life and ministry, I wish I'd believed God for more. So I want to try and impart that to you a bit, all right? especially the younger ones. You know, believe God you know, for advance in the life of, of the church and through your ministry and your leadership. Not just to maintain things, but actually that God wants us to advance. I've also learnt from Terry, you don't have to be intense about this. Uh, I, I suppose we all have heroes... In the church, and one of my heroes is John Piper. Uh, And uh, I very rarely preach a sermon without quoting John Piper. Now, without getting into the details of it, Sue and I actually once spent a whole day with John Piper and his wife on our own. So it was quite a privilege. And uh, so I've encountered him firsthand uh, on my own for a day, and of course, I've read so much about what he he believes, what he's written. John Piper is quite intense, right? there's no doubt about that, He's quite intense. Uh, and uh, I remember a few years back reading an article by John Piper in which he'd been away, I think, on a sabbatical or something. And he was reflecting on that and said, I've come back from my time away and I see the state of the world and the state of the church. And uh, John Piper said, I've decided we've got to be serious about what we're doing, no more games. I'm thinking, oh, crumbs, John Piper, if John Piper is saying no more games, it's already intense, you know, <laughs> it sounds a bit driven. Um, by contrast, Terry Virgo has always been frustratingly relaxed, right, <laughs> just believes God and he imparted that, and he imparted that to me and so uh, I just want to all honesty share that with you and say, have faith in God. Now, secondly, it's something actually that uh, Raj has just alluded to. I didn't know um, that he was going to allude to this until we had a conversation last night. I had no uh, idea about this. But the second thing I'm saying is pioneer or persevere, question mark. Pioneer or persevere. If I had my time again, what I would do is that I would pray, I would seek the Lord And I would find a place to stay and minister for my entire life. Uh, If I had my time again, that's what I would choose to do. Now, that's not the way it's worked out for me, but I do believe that's what I would choose now to do, if I could do it again. (coughs) You've got to have grace for that, uh, but I think personally to stay in one place for life would actually suit my teaching style of ministry. Uh, and it is simply a fact, friends, that if you look around the world, you will find that m- most of what are regarded as the most successful churches, now, that's difficult because what really you know, is successful, but the churches that tend to be regarded as highly successful around the world tend almost always to be led by men who actually give their whole life to that one church. And there's so many examples of that, so... Uh, you can think, for example, of uh, John Piper at Bethlehem Baptist Church. I know he began by teaching in a, in a college for a few years, but then gave his whole ministry to Bethlehem Baptist Church. Think of Rick Warren in California, given his whole life. He, he deliberately actually did seek God as the way he should go and will give his life for it. And that's one of the biggest churches, of course, in America that he's leading. You think of Bill Hybels at Willow Creek, who's given his whole life in ministry uh, to that particular church. But it is actually also true in New Frontiers, as it happens. Uh, Some of you will know the name of Don Smith, uh, Mm. uh, led two very successful churches in the south of England, actually planted both of them, uh, at Hastings and then at Eastbourne. So he gave half his life to one church and then half his life to the other church. But in both cases, he started with just a handful of people and built both churches up. Uh, the Hastings uh, church is uh, something around about 400. The the Eastbourne church now is more like a thousand. And uh, he planted, pioneered, and grew both those churches through very long and very effective ministries or I think of Malcolm Kays at the Coin in Woking, again one of our larger, most thriving churches, and he's, he's given decades of ministry to that. I suppose above all, Ben Davis, who went to Spurgeons College like I did, uh, and went as a student to work with this tiny church in Bracknell, uh, and then... When he finished at Spurgeon's College, went there full-time and stayed there till retirement and then continued in the eldership uh, on after retirement, so given his whole life to uh, Bracknell Church, which has uh, uh, seen huge growth in the last few years and it's again, a very effective and very uh, impacting church. We are a church-planting movement, and I want to say that my heart is with that, Absolutely. And I think over the years we have had many challenges to go, go, go and plant churches. And can I say I really do believe that because if we're going to reach the nation and the nations we need to plant churches. I believe that planting local churches is God's plan A and there isn't a plan B. Right? So that's how we're going to reach the nations, by planting churches. But I, I do want to say this, that, and this is, can be broadened out to... Uh, all sorts of leaders actually it's not always the case that it's right to go there are some people that actually need to stay and really give long period of time to one church Now, in a sense I think one has has got to try and know oneself actually Martin Lloyd-Jones used to say that what we need to do as Christians is to know ourselves we need to know ourselves and my observation is that in New Frontiers there have been those who have been excellent at moving on and pioneering and then have tried to persevere long term and it has not worked because they're pioneers, and not perseverers. Right? And what they can do is they can get in at the beginning and they can help a church to start and they can help a church to begin and they can get so far, but if they stay too long it just runs aground. And actually, sometimes they run aground. I've known guys who actually had nervous breakdowns in the end because they tried to do something that isn't actually them. So they've been excellent at pioneering, but not at persevering. And then um, I know also some guys, and I'm talking New frontiers, who have uh, been excellent at persevering and I think have been persuaded... Because they are good at persevering, they've actually been persuaded to move and try again to pioneer somewhere. And it actually hasn't worked for them. It hasn't worked for them and it hasn't really worked for the church that they've actually left. So it's, it's just that we really do need to know ourselves about this. Um, and I think that it's a very important thing for any leader to settle in their thinking. Am I a pioneer or am I a perseverer really? You know, am I the sort of person that should move on? help to plant elsewhere? Am I the sort of person that needs to dig in and give myself long term to this particular local church? At Church of Christ the King in Brighton we had a very unusual situation because I've given you examples of churches where the leaders have stayed long, long term and you can name those leaders but at Church of Christ the King in Brighton we had a whole eldership that persevered and There were six of us that were together for 20 years. And that is without doubt the biggest, longest-serving team of any church in New New Frontiers. Uh, Now, any of the six, I think, could have gone and led a church on their own. But actually, six of us decided to give it, in a sense, all we got for a long period of time. And we had an eldership that persevered uh, for 20 years uh, in that church. Pioneer or persevere. Thirdly, be convinced. Be convinced. Now, in a way, this is probably most true for those that are into, uh, given their whole time, full time into church leadership, uh, but I'm aware that there's bound to be in this room some who actually may be thinking that's what they would like to do in the course of time. You may not actually be there yet, but you may be thinking what I'd like to do would be to give my time full time to serving a local church. I would plead with you, do not do that unless you are convinced of two things. And really it's things that I've just alluded to. One, that the church is the hope for the world. Like you've got to be convinced of that. The church is the hope for the world. Now, sometimes when I say this, people are a bit spiritual with me, and they say, well, surely Jesus is the hope for the world. Yes, but actually it's the church that brings the truth of Jesus to the world. Right? So it's the hope for the world in that sense. And the other thing to be convinced of is what I've just specifically said. The church really is God's plan. There is no plan B. All right, uh, God is going to reach the nations of the world through planting and establishing local churches. You've got to be convinced about that. Now, in Christian leadership, there are ups and downs, which is why you need to be convinced. And Whether you're full-time or spare time in leadership, you'll know that. There are ups and downs. One of the things that's kept me going in uh, Christian leadership is an absolute conviction about the significance of the local church. And my, my favorite verse for the church is Ephesians 3:10, that God's intentions that now, through the church, the manifold, multicolored wisdom of God, should be made known to rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. And uh, that's always inspired me that God has an intention that right at the present time, that His manifest, multicolored glory, which has been exposed and expressed in and through Jesus Christ, should be demonstrated to angels. And demons, and that there should be this manifestation of god 's presence and glory and multicolored wisdom upon the earth, and that 's always been like a fire in my bones and over the years, and I say that i 've been doing this now for forty seven years, over the years, what i 've been convinced of is I really do love the local church All right? and uh, if I can be very personal at this moment, although I retired forty years ago. The reason though no, I retired seven years ago, after 40 years no, I retired seven years ago, after 40 years, the reason that I've continued, up until now, in eldership and doing what I'm doing is because I still love the local church. I really do. And I love local church leaders and local church pastors, because right, I see guys sometimes being very effective, sometimes guys struggling a bit, and uh, I really feel. Uh, for local church leaders, want to be behind them and encourage them um, because of the significance of what they are doing. The potential of God's community has always seemed to me to have no limits. I know sometimes church life can be sadly disappointing Uh, and uh, you may be leading a cell group or something and you're saying, well, uh, my group doesn't look particularly wonderful and remarkable in the demonstration of the manifold wisdom of God at the present time. I mean, you may feel like that, and sometimes it can be a bit disappointing. But it's always seemed to me that God's community has the potential to be absolutely wonderful. And I've always seen beyond the disappointments to the possibilities. So be convinced that the church is the hope for the world. And the church is God's plan A, not plan B. Next, implement the vision. Implement the vision. Now, I'm not saying here have a vision. I'm talking about implementing the vision. Because something that I've observed and understood over the years is that you can have strong vision for a church or for a small group or for a youth group or... uh, you know, some other area in church life that you may be leading, you can have strong vision uh, for what you're doing, but actually you may not have strategy to carry out that vision. Now, over the years, I've preached at times some very strong visionary messages, but it's a well-asked question, well, what are you going to do to actually make that happen? If you have a vision... Uh, you must be able to implement it. And there are two ways you can implement it. You either have the ability to do it yourself, or actually you need to get alongside you people who can help implement the vision. Which is why one of the things I learnt over 40 years was what I call the frustrating importance of administration. Now, because I'm a pastor-teacher... When it came to employing church staff, and this was particularly true at Brighton, where we had a lot of staff, what my heart was always saying was, we need another pastor, we need another youth worker, we need uh, another uh, student worker. But actually, quite often we were talking about how we could get somebody to help us with the administration of the church. But gradually it dawned on me, that this was highly important because if we were going to implement the strong vision we had as a local church, we actually needed people who could help us to implement that vision with the gifting uh, that they had got. I've had an interesting example of this out of experience actually at Citygate Church in Bournemouth, where I've been for the last few years. Now, I serve as a voluntary elder there, but obviously I'm, I'm caught up in the visionary expression of this church. And it seemed to me when I arrived there... That although there was quite strong vision, there wasn't actually administration to implement it. But we, ha- we had a guy in the church who was uh, at the very top level of administrative um, um, employment in the NHS, as it happened. So he was uh, very high up in, in that. In fact, he, he went on to uh, lead um, one of the North London hospital trusts. But uh, he was made, made redundant... Uh, a couple of years back, and I thought, this is the guy that we need. He's got the skills, and he's got the abilities to help implement our vision. And it's worked through, and John is now actually on staff with us at CityGate, uh, and he's only been with us uh, a few months, but boy, is he helping us to implement the vision. You can see it immediately, he's got that ability. And so I, I really did c- come to believe in the, as I say, <laughs> what I saw as the frustrating importance of administration. Uh, you need somebody to help implement the vision uh, I, I, one way I just illustrate this was that at Brighton we actually became very visionary about alpha courses we, we really did uh, we thought if we are going to evangelise as a, a local church the way that we are primarily going to do it is through the alpha course but I think we realised it wasn't good enough just to have the vision and so in a sense we threw everything at in that we put money into it, we put personnel into it we put backup courses into it and so sometimes our numbers could be relatively low sometimes it could actually be very high because we're a big church and sometimes it could be very high but we kept going and we, we kept the resources flowing and uh, it continued to feed converts uh, and members into uh, Church of Christ the King as we sought to implement that vision and work it through Next, you can ask more from your people I say this is all reflecting on years I've been in ministry. You can ask more from your people. And in a way, this is linked to implementing the vision. Now, the pastoral side of me was always cautious about overburdening people in the church, which isn't a bad concern. It was a genuine pastoral concern. But what I think, as I reflect over the years, and what I've observed over the years, are that in a local church people are prepared to give a lot of time, effort and money to things that they see to be worthwhile. Uh, And I'm not just talking about attending more meetings. I've seen this happen again and again. Good leaders can be quite demanding on their people, (laughs) but actually get a response. Uh, Now I'm going to illustrate this from a financial point of view. In, In the Brighton Church we got ourselves into a very big building programme. This building programme actually finished, financially finished in the year 2000 or the end of the year 1999. So we're going back now 16 years to when we finished, but the building project cost us three and a half million pounds. So if you could take back 16 years and that's when we finished. You can imagine the kind of sort of sum of money that looked like when we began. I mean, it was a huge, huge sum of money. Three and a half million pounds so how are we going to get the church to, to finance this now I have yet to meet a church leader that's got anybody who will admit that he's got anybody with any money in his church right? uh, <laughs> church leaders never seem to have anybody with any money so they claim in their church so it was like that at Brighton all right so we were a big church uh, I suppose at the time it was something like eight, 800 or more um, but it, it was it was single mothers and it was students and uh, you know, nobody looked really so they got any money at all. And uh, we were going through this uh, uh, this this big building project, and so we decided, as elders, I mean, obviously prayed about it, discussed it, and we decided as elders that we would actually ask the church uh, for hundred thousand pounds three times a year. Uh, and that was beside regular monthly pledge giving, by the way. And there was also regular monthly pledge giving. But we said we'll ask the church for £100,000 three times a year. That was a big ask. And uh, I can remember, because I was leading the church uh, through most of that, uh, having a gift day. And when it was a gift day, we used to have the buckets at the front, and people always used to bring it to the front. And, I can remember many occasions when I stood at the front and felt really very moved because I'd see people coming. I thought, you haven't got any money. You're putting into this gift day. And we always made it 100,000. We preached to it. We prayed about it. And when we took up the offering, we didn't always immediately get it. But if we didn't immediately get it, we'd continue to pray. And from my memory, about through all the years that we did that, we never failed to hit at least 100,000 pounds three times a year. In 1999, we decided we'd really like to clear the debt completely for the new millennium. And the implications of that was that on the last gift day, which was in October that year, uh, we needed actually £200,000. So that would clear it. So this was a massive ask, £200,000, back in 1999. And the church had already given twice that year £100,000. And so we brought this to the church and we said to the church, on this occasion we're asking for £200,000 on the gift day, please give or make a pledge, but make a pledge that you know you will redeem before the end of the year. If you, if you can't redeem before the end of the year, don't pledge. So on gift day itself, we raised £160,000 in gifts and pledges. But this was October, so we knew we still had a few months to go. So we prayed and prayed and to me, this was one of the great moments in our history at CCK. On the 31st of December, 1999, in the bank, we had £201,000. <laughs> and we cleared the debt for the new millennium. I think if people know it's worthwhile, you can actually be quite demanding on your people. Also, next one, and this is for all leaders, uh, whether you're full-time, spare-time, part-time... Um, play to your strengths, play to your strengths. I used to discuss leadership quite a bit with Don Smith, who so successfully founded and established Hastings and then Eastbourne. And I used to say to Don, Don, what do you think are the three greatest needs in our churches? And he would say, leadership, leadership, leadership. Uh, and if you think about it, and I have thought about it a lot over the years, you can have all the right values, all the New Frontiers values, which are the right ones, of course. You can have all the right values... <laughs> Uh, But if you have weak or poor leadership, it will make for little advance. And I want to say to you as a group of leaders that I think one of your primary concerns as a leader, whatever level of leadership you are at the present time, (laughs) that you look for, pray about, and seek to discern others that can come into leadership. Uh, Now, it may may not be true here, but you might be leading the stewarding, say, in the church. Right, well... About, think about more others that could come through and take on that role at some point. All right? Because you need students, you need people that will organise that and uh, help with that. It runs through every level of, of leadership. And actually that's been a real motivation for me to, in terms of my involvement with leadership training over the years so that we would help to bring leaders through in our churches. Now let me tell you something about leadership training. I, I was overseeing leadership training for many years. I actually introduced pioneered and established the advanced uh, training program that we've run uh, for many years i know it's changing now in the various spheres and what i've detected over the years right back to when i was a baptist pastor is that we have this language that if you go to a college or a bible school or if you go on a, uh, a training course you are being trained for ministry let me tell you you are not being trained for the ministry, because the most that a college or a, a course can do, even our best courses in New Frontiers, is contribute to your training. Right? The best training that anybody will get for leadership is doing it at grassroots in the local church. That's where you are trained above all. But what we were doing in the courses that we've run in New Frontiers is to contr- make a theological contribution into that training. And that's been my motivation. I've been very strong with that and tried to help with that. But actually, people are most effectively best and most completely trained at grassroots level in the local church. Part of the secret of being a leader is to know your strengths and also your weaknesses. So some leaders are brilliant exhorters, Some leaders are good preachers or good teachers. Some leaders are good strategists. It's best, if you can, try not to waste energy on what you're not good at. You know, we can get caught up into all sorts of things in church life. And when it's a smaller church, and some of our churches are quite small, it's difficult not to be jack-of-all-trades, to be honest. But if you can, try not to put too much energy into what you're not good at. I've got a very... uh, um, sort of almost amusing example of this. But Bill Hybels, who leads Willow Creek, one of the biggest churches in America, he said that for all his gifting, well he didn't say for all my gifting, but for, for all his gifting, he said he discovered that one thing he is absolutely lousy at is visiting anybody in hospital. So you've got this mega church pastor, we call a superstar pastor, but he said if he goes to hospital, he doesn't who am I allowed to talk to? Do I need to approach the staff? Am I allowed to sit on the bed? You know, can, I, can I pray in this hospital? All these questions go through his mind. He says he's in a panic. He doesn't know what to do. So he learnt not to visit hospitals. And in Willow Creek, the thousands of members, there are others who are very gifted in visiting hospitals and, and seeing those there. So it's a question of playing to your strengths, if you can, rather than trying to do what you know you're not good at. Now... Because this is the wider leadership group, this won't hit everybody in quite the same way, but I'm going to throw it out because I say some of you are full-time, others of you will come through full-time in the course of time, and it may still have some wide implication, even for those of you that don't come through full-time. But I'm a great believer in trying to develop specialist skills or abilities. Uh, Because of uh, the the amount of work I've done, being involved in training, I've had all sorts of guys say to me, particularly at the end of a course that they've done with us, uh, do you think I should take a theology degree? And I've always said to them, please do not take a general theology degree. I said, specialise on something. And uh, my reason for saying that is that the more we can develop specialist abilities and skills in our family of churches the more not only can we bless our own church, but we can bless the wider family of churches. And so we, we, we've had some classic examples, I think, of this. Now, the trouble is I'm using, I know, rather academic examples, but uh, I want to go wider to the practical thing. But so, Nick Chattriff, for example... Uh, he he wanted to take a PhD at Oxford. And I really did plead with people like David Stroud and others uh, who were relevant at the time, can we not put some money behind this? Because he needs some finance to be able to take this PhD. But he's been able to serve our churches in terms of Islamic studies because of his ability in that area. He's got a PhD now. And he's been able to serve our churches and teach and open up churches uh, uh, to an understanding of the Islamic world in a particular way. Uh, Sue and I have a son who's also a pastor. He took a, a, a master's degree at King's College in Christian Ethics, which again he's been able to use very broadly in teaching across our churches. Ray Lowe has specialised in church history uh, and again has uh, been called upon uh, in many of our, our churches and has been able to bless and help. I've I developed a certain sort of uh, kind of uh, interest, I suppose, in in eschatology, but I've been able to hopefully contribute some sensible eschatology (laughs) into our churches uh, over the years because I gave particular attention to that. Now, you might say, well, I'm not an academic sort of person. No, but you might be the sort of person who's very good at youth work. Well, do all you can to learn about youth work, specialise in it, you know, get get this. Get the skills you can, the training that you can. Or you might be very good at uh, teaching on marriage. Well, again, hone that up. You know, get to, uh, exposure to other courses. Uh, you, if you can, you know, specialise on something. So that we're not all generalists, but we can actually make a specialist contribution into our church and perhaps wider than that. And alongside this, please take particular note of Paul's exhortation to Timothy which is fan into a flame the gift of God. Now, you're an international church, I appreciate that, and I think it's absolutely wonderful. Let me just say, English people, we tend to be over-modest. And so, if somebody says to you, you've got a real prophetic gift, or you've got a good teaching gift, we tend to say, oh, no, 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 We, we want to deny. Can I say, if you've got a gift from God, it is a gift from God. All right, and so your uh, responsibility is not to kind of be over modest about it paul says if you've got a gift of god fan it all right bring it up to flame use it for the body of christ because the gift is not about what you have it's what you can impart uh, to the body of christ <laughs> i have i've got a story i, I like to tell i soon i've been many times to dubai very involved out there for many years and uh, We've got some great people out there. Now, that's, that's a hugely uh, international church that we have in Dubai. And uh, w- w- we got to know a guy there who was uh, actually English, married to a Filipino lady. And, uh, you know, a number of people in Dubai have very, very high power jobs. And this guy, as, as I could understand it, he was, his job was to be a lateral thinker in the oil industry. So I think what was happening was he simply had good ideas and he could impart these ideas. And you know, all the companies took them up and uh, began to process them. He obviously had a pretty good job. Uh, but he was absolutely terrified of flying in an aeroplane. And so you've got this high-powered businessman, and goodness knows what salary... And he said, sometimes we've gone to Australia from Dubai for a holiday, and my teenage daughter hangs on to me all the way and says, it'll be all right, daddy, it'll be all right. (laughs) So I said to him, but if you're in the oil industry, surely you you have to fly out to oil rigs on helicopters from time to time. And he said, oh, that's no problem. I love flying helicopters, no problem at all. Now, I'm struggling with this because if you you think about it, I mean, let's face it, you hardly ever hear of a plane crash it's very very rare but helicopters fall out of the sky every five minutes and uh, he says uh no problem uh, with helicopters oh, that's really i was really puzzled but i said well how come <laughs> now i think this guy like a lot of very brilliant people is slightly eccentric so uh, he said well i don't know if you know this but you know the big rotor blade on top of a, a helicopter and of course it's bolted to the body of the helicopter He said, that bolt is called a Jesus nut. And he said, because it is a Jesus nut that is holding the blade to the helicopter, I feel perfectly safe every time I fly in a helicopter. So I thought, well, okay. (laughs) But but what this guy in the church was particularly good at was building a a cell group. I mean, he was just brilliant at it. And they used to pour into his, his cell group. He was outstanding. So... I'm out there with him, and I say to him one day, Tom, you are so good at building small groups. You really must keep at that and give your attention to that. And he did the English thing. said, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not really, It's just, I don't know what happens. Began to deny it all. So I said, Tom, you are good at it. Fan it into a flame. And I always remember I was on the plane uh, just about to fly back from Dubai, and I was just about to switch the phone off, and the text ding-dong thing went... And it was Tom, and he said, I heard what you said, I will continue to do it. And uh, guys, I'm saying to you, you've got a gift from God, don't be modest about it, it's a gift for the church, fan it into a flame. Can I say something about preaching and teaching? Now, some of you uh, will be preaching and... uh, Uh, imparting truth, teaching in some context. There's a lot of technical discussions that you can get into from theologians and in books about Kerygma and Didache and is the preaching the same as teaching and so on. Uh, There's a lot of technical discussion about this. But the way I view it is like this. On a Sunday, basically what I want to do is to preach the great doctrines of the Bible and look for people to encounter God. Outside of Sundays, there are other occasions when I like to teach to impart information to people. Now, you may not have detected anything very different there, but there is a difference and I want to play on this because I think there's something here that ought to be more recognised in some of our churches. I think Sundays are the times for the grand proclamation (coughs) when actually by Preaching the word of God, the truth of God, we're seeking to move people, stir people, thrill people with truth, encourage people into an encounter with God through the word. Now, my whole philosophy of preaching was dynamically set alight decades ago, I suppose, by something I read from Jonathan Edwards, the great revivalist uh, theologian in America 250 or so years ago. And Jonathan Edwards has a purple patch where he speaks about preaching and he says, you know, there are complaints about the number of sermons some of you are being asked to listen to in the course of the week. And uh, some of you feel that actually you can't cope with two or th- more than two or three sermons in a week. I'm thinking, well, in your dreams these days. Uh, but he said, unless actually it's for want of rebellion or if it, unless it's a kind of rebellion, He says you need to understand that in preaching what is happening is that there is actually an impression made at the time and afterwards you may remember some of it and can be encouraged by it, but the important thing is not that you remember what is said, but you encounter God and have that impression at the time. And I think that brought something together in my thinking and in my mind and it really made me understand that on a Sunday, friends, I think many people in our churches would think what we're trying to do is to impart information. Actually, I don't think primarily that's what we are doing. I think on a Sunday, what we're doing is seeking to bring people into an encounter with God through the word at the time of the preaching. And that makes a big difference to the way that preachers actually preach, if you can get hold of that. Now... Uh, If you think that actually, if you're a preacher here, and obviously a number of you are, if you're a preacher here, if you think that what you are preaching on a Sunday is going to be remembered by your church, then there's a quick cure for that, and that is to go to a cell group during the week where they are discussing your preaching, (laughs) which we sometimes do in our churches. So this is what happens. You go to this small group, and the first question is, who have you, how many of you heard the sermon on Sunday? Well, that's the first disappointment, because half of them were away. All right, so you know, you've got to discount half the group, first of all. So the second question is, who was preaching on Sunday? And then there's a kind of befuddled silence, and you, and you think, oh, actually, it was me that was preaching. So you get that, get that established. What were John's three points on Sunday? Now, I mean, you're all over the place, I mean, you've got sermon headings from six months back and all sorts of things being, being trotted out. And, uh, I mean, it is quite a sobering experience. If you think that people remember your three points of what you preached last Sunday, i say you're going to be sorely disappointed. Now, I know I'm exaggerating a bit, but it is only a bit. From what I'm saying, you might say, well, it doesn't sound as though it's very important in terms of what you actually bring as content on the Sunday. But, but you need to understand this. If people sit under a biblical ministry, what happens over the course of time is that the positive truth builds up in people's lives. And the way I illustrate it is saying that I I don't know what I... I can't remember what I ate for breakfast on the 14th of May 1997. But whatever I did eat for breakfast on the 14th of May 1997... Has contributed to this wonderful specimen of manhood that you see before you tonight, okay? Because you get a build up, all right, from your breakfast that, they, you know, adds something, probably too much to you. And uh, it's like that in preaching. There's a deposit of truth that, that builds up. Even if people don't remember the sermon, there's a deposit of truth that builds up. And one of the ways that you can test that is that actually, that when you encounter somebody who challenges you in some way, actually, you suddenly find, you know, more than you realise. There's something that's it, built up, there's de- there is a deposit of truth. So I'm very committed to Sunday preaching being an attempt to really bring people into an encounter with, encounter with God uh, through the word of God at the time. Having said that, the teaching aspect is extremely important apart from Sunday because increasingly we live in a world where we have people coming into our churches who simply do not know how to live because of the background they're coming out of. Uh, I was a Baptist pastor for nearly 10 years in a church in Kent. We had about 200 church members and in 10 years of being pastor of that church of 200, and a lot of young couples as well, in 10 years that we were there, we had not one single divorce in 10 years. Now, Today, none of our churches will be able to give that kind of statistic. Well, it's a different world that we're living in. And people are are coming in with all sorts of uh, experiences of life, where really, as they come into our churches, they simply don't know really how to live. If I had my time again, I would, from time to time, have a well-organised school of life where actually I'll be seeking to equip people with detailed instruction on how to live. Um, I'm talking about things like marriage, things like work, things like handling money, things like uh, uh, sex, but also things even like politeness and reliability. There's a whole raft of stuff that people just don't know about today that I think we need to impart to people. So... That's something on preaching and teaching. Next, go for students if you can. Now, I know not, that's not possible in all churches uh, because they simply haven't got any access to any students at all. But it, I think it becomes more and more possible for our churches to go for students because just about everything that breathes these days is declared by the government to be a university. So you, you find that universities are popping up in, in all sorts of, of places. Uh, and if it's possible for you to actually physically get to students, then it should be, I would suggest, a major priority. I remember once uh, some years ago, in one year, now, let me say this first, I've, I've led, actually led three churches uh, and now I'm, I'm at Citygate and in Bournemouth. And in each of the four churches that I've been involved in, all have attracted students and uh, it's been an in- incredibly important dimension of church life. But I remember some years ago, in-, in the same year, I went to three New Frontiers churches in three different European cities, three different <laughs> countries, three different European cities. All of them were big cities. So they had a New Frontiers church. In each of these cities, there were big universities. And in, in each place, I asked the leaders what they were doing about outreach to students. And in each of those three European churches, New Frontiers churches, they said to me they were doing nothing. And I thought, (coughs) you are crazy. Because it's very difficult to build churches in European cities. We all know that. But in any university today, there will be students from all over the world who are attending that university, and there will be Christian students. At least start with them. Get some of the Christian students into your church. Because if you get some Christian students, you might be pulling behind them those that are as yet unbelievers. I've had pastors say to me, you can't grow a church on students. Let me tell you, you can. Because if students come into your church, actually what students do is fall in love with one another. And they get married... And then they actually like to stay where they've fallen in love. And they get jobs and they become part of the church. It may take more than a couple of years, but you can build a church on, on students. You can do that. And, of course, students are influencers of the future. International students return, many of them, to their own country, having been influenced by what they've got from your church. And, I mean, of course, Michael knows this only too well with John Pepe, who came to Brighton years ago... Pinched one of our young ladies, married her, took her back to, to Ghana, and of course then started a church which has developed into an apostolic work. You know, and that was influenced out of Brighton. Um, Tom and Julie Eaton were when they were before they were married, and Tom and Julie Eaton, when they were just Tom and Julie, they came to our church as students and their eyes met across a crowded meeting and they fell in love. Uh, and they got married, and we released them into full-time work as student workers but they had a real heart to plant a church. And so we felt we ought to get behind that. And they felt, interestingly enough, Michael might be aware of this, they felt at the beginning, actually they should go to Ghana to plant a church. So we took it responsibly and we sent them to Ghana. We said, go there for a week and see what John Peep is doing. So we sent them there. And then this extraordinary thing happened that while they were in Ghana, God said to them, actually, it's not Ghana, it's Japan. (laughs) And today we have a church in Japan. And that happened out of our church again in Brighton. Came in young students. I mean, Tom and Julie Eaton are the most non-Japanese-looking people that you could ever meet. (laughs) They're kind of tall, fair, blonde. And yet they've been pioneering and building a church for some years in Japan. This is a day of student opportunity. If we can, we must seize it. It has its challenges. Let me be brutally honest with you. If you are working with students, if you have students in your church, some of them will be sleeping together. All right? You've got that challenge. That will be balanced almost couple for couple by the couples that are married in your church that should be sleeping together that aren't sleeping together. All right? So it kind of balances out and you've got to deal with it pastorally on both sides. Right? If you look at me a bit shocked, it happens. Believe me, it happens. All right, seize the student opportunity. Next, beware the latest fad. One of the greatest temptations in leadership is to believe that if we do it this way, we'll get great success. And I have always said, always said, uh, exceptions make poor models. Please get that, exceptions make poor models. There are exceptional churches around. Willow Creek, seeker friendly, uh, Saddleback with... Uh, Uh, there in California with Rick Warren, and uh, uh, that's purpose-driven. Hillsong, famous for its welcome home and for its worship. Let me say, as you learn from these uh, exceptional churches and from their leaders, there are obviously very good things that you can take from them. But there's a huge problem that always remains, and that is that you haven't got leading your church, Bill Hybels, Rick Warren, or the Hillsong Band. And therefore, if you simply try and ape them, you'll probably fall flat on your face. I'm with John Piper here. When he was... uh, This is my John Piper quote. (laughs) When he was beginning his series on Romans a number of years ago, John Piper said this, I'm not as moved now as I used to be by the tyranny of the urgent and by the need to respond to every trendy view that blows across the cultural sea in America. Well past midlife, I have a deep confidence that the best way to be lastingly relevant is to stand on the rock-solid, durable old truths, rather than this jumping from one pragmatic bandwagon to another. We do need to get hold of that in the body of Christ. Persevere and build with integrity. I've had pastors who plant, uh, spoke speak to me, planted the church, and they've said, you know, we've been here for some time now, and we've still got much the same group of people. We're not really growing at the present time. You know, it's a bit disappointing. What do you think? And I always say to them, why should people come to you? There's all sorts of churches out there. It's a huge choice. Why should they come to you? Actually, what you've got to do is to really persevere, build with integrity, and actually, if you do that, as time passes people gradually begin to find you and they begin to honour your integrity and they begin to come to you. Right, for all of you in leadership, don't fret too much about those who leave because people always will leave you. If you're the lead pastor you will find that church members will leave you. If you're leading a small group, you'll find that actually after about two years, most of them have left to go to other groups or gone elsewhere. Um, if you lead a youth group, uh, you might find that some of the young people fall out, uh, fall out. You will find that whatever level of leadership you're in, people will leave you. It always happens. If you're a pastor, you will feel it very personally. Um, what usually happens if people are leaving... Is that they say to the pastor, this isn't personal. <laughs> Believe me, you feel it personally if you're a pastor. Years ago, when people left churches, I don't know why it happened like this, but years ago, this is how it happened. People always used to write a letter by hand, put it in a brown envelope, and put it through your front door. All right? That's always how people seem to to lose uh, to, to leave churches uh, I remember saying that once in the sermon at CCK in Brighton and two days later I had 70 or 80 brown envelopes that came through the door. (laughs) A whole group of them conspired together and they stuffed these envelopes through the door. I suppose today people do it by emails, right? People will always leave you. I prophesy and have from day one, people will always move from one sphere to another sphere, Right? it's part of, of life this is the encouraging point generally speaking for everybody that leaves you because they're unhappy somebody else joins you because they've been unhappy somewhere else all right <laughs> so it does tend to balance out right? what we've got to try and do even as the most tender pastor and I'm ministering to myself here is accept it and move on right? otherwise you just kind of get destroyed by it really Appreciate different ministries. Again, this is for all of us. Appreciate different ministries. In Ephesians 4, we read the ascended Christ has given ministries to the church. Uh, Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. Before we went into the different spheres, because I've been itinerant for many years, travel around so many churches, quite a common complaint that I used to pick up was we don't get enough apostolic input into our church. Actually, I think that has changed. I think because of the spheres, that's actually helped that. And I don't actually pick that up, really, from churches these days. But I always used to say, if, if, if a leader said that to me, I used to say, well, get somebody in. You know, they don't just magically appear like a rabbit out of a hat. Um, you know, get, get somebody in. And I want to broaden that and to say, your church really does need all the ministries for the health of your church. And I think this, this church, from what I know of it over the years, has been a very good model of that. We need apostles who will open up our vision. We need prophets who sometimes will come and stir us up. We need evangelists who will sometimes come and help us to reap. And we need experienced pastor teachers who will help to edify and thrill people with the truth. And it's important that actually we receive ministries that come into our church well. Um, you know, Sometimes, this is, this is uh, particularly for those of you that, that uh, preach... Sometimes when somebody comes from outside, they say to the church exactly what you said to the church dozens of times, and people say, do you know, that was amazing on Sunday. (laughs) I've never ever heard anybody ever say that before. You either get frustrated and die of a stroke, or you, you kind of get blessed that they've actually finally heard it, get other ministries in. Uh, very quickly just a couple more pay attention to team pay attention to team you're here i guess because in some way you're on a team right so you're part of the wider leadership team of this church i, I believe uh, and we've always got to give attention to team i i have been involved in building teams being part of teams i've been wonderfully blessed by being in teams and i said that at church of christ the king uh, we had six of us who stayed together for 20 years. So I have got some experience of what makes a successful team. And I've reflected on this because in many churches, teams can find it quite hard to hold together. And, you know, we, you get tensions and you get fallout. So we had six of us together for 20 years. And I would say that there were two things that actually held our team together. And I think you can imply this at whatever level... Of team membership you may be in, in at this time, I think we always genuinely appreciated other people's different giftings in the team. Right? We genuinely did. Now, I'm going to give you a little example of this. In our team at CCK, the eldership team, we had Dave Fellingham, who may be a name that's known to a good number of you, and we also had a guy called Steve Warford, who probably none of you know. Now. Dave Fellingham is well known as a worship leader. He's prophetic. He's kind of travelled around a lot in the church. He's quite well known in New Frontiers. Steve Walford was the pastoral anchor of C.C.K. and is to this day. He became an elder, I think, when he was 29. He's now about 57 or 58. He's still there. He'll be the longest ever serving elder at Church of Christ the King. and He's, he's been the pastoral anchor of that church. Now, Dave Fellingham... Had particular gifts, and Steve Orford has particular gifts, and they were together the, we were together in the same team. And this is how I would describe it to you. If you had somebody who was going to jump off Beachy Head, which in southern England is the favourite suicide spot, it was quite near Brighton, people used to go up there and jump over, favourite suicide spot. If you had anybody who was going to jump off Beachy Head, the person you desperately needed at that moment was Dave Nathaniel, because he was brilliant in the process. Absolutely brilliant, right? So you'd get Dave Fellingham up there and almost certainly Dave Fellingham will be able to stop this person jumping, right? Absolutely brilliant to the crisis. But the next day, Dave Fellingham wouldn't even remember the name of the guy, right? <laughs> What you needed then was Steve Warford because Steve Warford was the ongoing pastoral guy who would actually get behind long-term support. And that was reflected really right across the teams. Very different giftings, but we genuinely respected each other's giftings. So that's one thing about being in a successful team. The other thing is that if you're going to be in a successful team, you cannot push your own agenda. And again, at CCK, we had a particular example of this. The six of us that were in, that held together for those 20 years. All of us were preachers, and all of us would have liked, <coughs> sorry, all of us would have liked to have preached more. And that includes Terry. Terry was one of those six. But nobody, including Terry, ever pushed that they must preach more. Right. So we always kind of held respect for the others, and none of us, I think, pushed in anything, really, our own particular agenda. And I think those two things are vital. If you're going to, be, going to enjoy the benefit of a team, do not think that you can go in, disregard other people's gifting, or you can push your own agenda. If you're going to get the benefits of the team, You've got to recognise complementary gifting and you've not to push your own agenda. And I say that out of experience, which is why I'm saying it so strongly. Uh, what shall I say? I, I need to come to it Um let, 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 me, yeah, let, me, all right, let me jump to the, to the last thing. All right, so I did have two other things, but I'm going to jump to this. Finally, I want to say Jesus before ministry or Jesus before leadership. Let me actually give you a verse from the Bible. Uh, If you go to Philippians 3.10, there's uh, a very well-known verse there where the Apostle Paul is expressing his desire in terms of knowing Christ. In Philippians 3.10, Paul says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Now, there's always some debate as to exactly what Paul means about attaining to the resurrection from the dead. But the basic thing I want you to notice there is that Paul's longing, above all, was to identify with Christ. I want to know Christ. Mm. Now, I have been very fortunate, and I really do count myself extremely fortunate. I've had 47 years in ministry and leadership. But I have to face the question... What happens if it all goes? And for me, one day, and that one day will be relatively very soon, it will go. And all of us who are in leadership, I think we have to say to ourselves, guys, what happens if it all goes? What happens if my partner dies? What happens if my health goes? I was a bit proud, probably too proud, of the fact that in 40 years in ministry, full-time, I only ever had two Sundays off because I was ill. So at CCK, and I was there 24 years in Brighton, uh, amongst the elders, I was the fittest. So Terry Verger had been down for months with shingles. He was out. Right? Steve Hawford, who I've talked about as the pastoral anchor he, he had severe back trouble, he was laid on his back for a, a year, um, couldn't attend anything for a year, he used to do pastoral work from a phone flat on his back for a year. Dave Fellingham had uh, uh, <laughs> peculiarities, like if he, if he was going to India, he would, for many days eat curry and get it a bit hotter every day, then he would be very ill. And I'd say, I would say, I will not pray every day because you're so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> so, but John Hosier, he just went on and on and on, all right, 40 years and only ever two Sundays when I didn't preach because I was unwell. We moved down to Bournemouth and we'd only been there a couple of months. And I thought I ought to go and see the doctor. Went to see the doctor. He sent me to a consultant and for the first time in my life, I'm facing a consultant, never done this before, and this consultant says, Unfortunately, and you know your life is going to change, he says, Unfortunately, you've got prostate cancer. And I'd never had anything wrong with it. And suddenly, from nowhere, you know, I've got prostate cancer. And I won't go into the details of this, but I actually thought, and there are certain reasons for this, I didn't know what happened to me then at all, because I had no experience of this at all. I, You get sent for scans to see if it's gone into your bones and things. That's what they they do next. Uh, And I actually thought I had secondary cancer. And so I thought, that's it. It's over for me. I really, really felt that. And Sue and I talked about the fact, you know, what we would do if I was going to die. And suddenly, from nowhere, it was all going. And none of us know. Or let, let me say, there has been an outcome to that, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't have second cancer, um, and uh, I'm still here today. Uh, and uh, and I'm very, very grateful for that. But it, it just brought it home to me. You just never know. You just never know. Um, do, do you know this? Some of you, I'm sure, know Greg Haslam, um, Westminster Chapel. And uh, four months ago or so, he, he got signed off, was having some... Um, medical struggles he got signed off a couple of weeks ago he had to say it's finished and you know, Greg's such a preacher and uh, he's 63 and he's been at Westminster Chapel for 15 years so well known in New Frontiers and none of us know none of us know. You know our health could go and suddenly it's over now I'm stressing this because what I want to say to you as I finish is this if that happens to us what have you got? What have I got? Paul says, that I might know him. Yeah. That I might know him. And brothers and sisters, as I close, I really want to say this. Please don't live for your leadership. Above all, live to know mm-hmm. Jesus Christ. So, 47 years, um, and that's some of my anecdotes and reflections. So I've used up... (laughs) I've used up my time, I'm sorry, Raj, but I'm also very faithful on time, all right? So I finish when I'm asked to finish. I was asked to finish at half past nine. We will finish, but I'm going to pray for you. Okay. so if you'd like to stand and... I'd be right to pray for you. Father, I thank you for these brothers and sisters here. Obviously, most of them I don't really know at all, but I I thank you, Lord, for their faithfulness. I thank you, Lord, that they're serving as leaders in this church. And Father, some of them may feel that they're not doing a huge amount, but Lord, I thank you that everybody in leadership here is making a contribution. And that contribution helps to make up the whole as all the parts come together and all the contributions are made. And Father, whatever role of leadership, whatever role in ministry these brothers and sisters have, Lord, I pray for them. I pray that they will persevere, Lord God, in the ministry that you've given to them. I pray that they will fan into a flame the gift of God. I pray, Father, for preachers, for teachers, for youth workers, Lord, for cell leaders, for maybe steward leaders. Lord, whatever role, worship leaders, Father, whatever gifting that these brothers and sisters have, Lord, I pray that they may fan it into a flame, that they might more effectively serve this church. Lord, I pray, I want to pray this for you particularly, I pray that some of you will settle in your mind, I know this. I'm not saying something that can never change, I'm not trying to put this on you forever, but that you'll settle in your mind right now, no, I think I should go and be elsewhere to help plant a church, or no, I am going to dig in here, I'm not going to live with my suitcase half-packed, I'm going to give my... Contribution here for the foreseeable future and really dig in to help serve the life of this church. Lord, I pray that uh, this group of people will know themselves. And Father, I pray that you will abundantly bless this church because of these leaders. I pray, Father, that sinners will be saved. I pray that backsliders will be restored. I pray the saints may be edified. I pray. Lord God, that this church will touch the nation and the nations. And Father, for anything that I've shared tonight that can land on different people in different ways, I pray that you'll bless it, use it, multiply its effect, help us to be better leaders to the glory of God, but above all, Father, may we know Christ. May we identify with